salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Brent Cooper of Calgary, Alberta's Huevos Rancheros. The Alberta music scene in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, for some folks who weren't there, um, can you maybe describe what it was like in uh, Calgary specifically, and maybe Edmonton if you guys uh, went there as well for gigs? Well, in the mid to late 80s, I was in a couple of bands. One was called the Ted Clark Five, and another was called the Gravity Thugs. And the thugs were kind of pre-grunge in a way. Hmm. And uh, we ended up being pretty popular. And I'm not sure why. I think um, I think the most prominent in my uh, circle of friends, the most prominent Alberta band was Junior Gone Wild. Hmm. Because they had just put out the uh, Less Art, More Pop, which is still an amazing record. Uh, there were a couple of places to play in Calgary. It's always kind of been the same. There's never been a lot of great places to play. But we had the Westward Club. And the Westward Club, in its run, hosted everybody from um, Nirvana to Red Hot Chili Peppers to Guar. Like, it was all in the oh, same wow. summer, I think. And kind of as now, it was a little bit hard to break out. I mean, Edmonton is still three hours away. With no internet, it was a bit harder to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, but college radio was really supportive. CJSW and CJSR in Edmonton were both excellent, and still are excellent stations, and super supportive of any of the bands I was in and any of the other local bands. So uh, you have to excuse my ignorance here. I asked Duvetang the same question, which I've heard, I'm sure they've heard a million times, but uh, uh-huh. how does one start an instrumental band i mean was that always the goal or was that just you couldn't find a singer or i mean i didn't you know i asked you the same question you couldn't find a guitar player i'm just my ignorance yeah. is on full display here well, i'm sure you've heard it a million times but i had always liked instrumental music from when i was a kid i had mentors records hmm. and two things really sort of flipped my switch maybe three one was uh seeing slow and they played a place called the National Hotel. And they were pretty much ill-prepared for everything. <laughs> and they came out and did, uh, I don't know, half a dozen instrumental songs. Huh. And Christian is a great guitar player. I thought, wow, I really like that. And I was in the, I might have been in the Gravity Sucks and the Tech Art Five at the time. And I thought, wow, I wish we could do that. And we couldn't. Huh. And then a couple years later, I saw a fellow named Evan Johns. Evan Johns. Uh, was a Washington, D.C. guitar player who moved to Austin. And I loved him. And he came, I had long hair and the loudest amp ever. And um, he came to town and played his crazy mix of Austin, big guitars from Texas, instrumental rockabilly, everything. And I just thought, that's great. I wish I could do that. So I logged out my mind. And then um, I've been kicked out of a couple of bands for not being serious enough. Hmm. And then the next step was Graham, who played bass. We both worked in a guitar shop. And li- this is the literal truth. I said, Graham, we are going to form an instrumental band. <laughs> I'm going to play guitar, and you can play bass. And we sat down and tried to learn Evan John's version of Telstar. Huh. And Graham said, who will play drums? And Richie walked in the door. Huh. Wow. And Richie, Richie, we had known from other bands, and he was a friend, and he was driving a van doing deliveries or something, and he literally walked in and he said, you're our drummer. 
Huh. And within a couple of weeks, we were gigging. Now, is it easier to book gigs being an instrumental band or, or more difficult? Or is it does it matter? I'm just curious, like pitching your band to clubs and that, things of that nature. There were times that it was pretty hard. Like right away, I think that because, um, I mean, everybody knew us because I'd been in a bunch of bands, Graham been in a bunch of bands, Rich had been in a bunch of bands, that when I called Sue from the West and said, hey, I got a band, can you give us a gig? She said, sure, how about, and our first gig was opening up for the Dead Milkman. Hmm. Oh, wow. And uh, and we, even though we were pretty slack, we could play our instruments and we could pull it off. And our goal from the get-go was really just to have fun. Hmm. And there were so many bands at that time around us that wanted to be R.E.M. or wanted to be the Smiths or wanted to be the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And we just wanted to get a case of beer and, um, and play. <laughs> and... There were some people who didn't didn't really like us because of that, um, but I think we won over a lot of people because I think we had a certain amount of charm, and we could play, and it was obvious that we were having fun. Now, um, we didn't have a vocalist on stage. Um, is there a, a member of the band who takes on duties to um, you know work the crowd to uh, engage the crowd uh, between songs? I guess that fell to me. I, I was quite a chatterbox for a long time. Um, <laughs> pro, pro, I'm sure that it drove Richie Graham crazy. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so I think I, think I kind of took on that role. Yeah, for better or worse, I've been told I'm not very funny, and I've also <laughs> been told I am funny. So <laughs> maybe it depends who's in the audience. But there were a lot of times when people said, oh, you guys would be really good if you had a singer. <laughs> or it was like so many times or we did have one guy pop on stage in uh, Victoria and say man I'm a singer and I'm going to make you guys some money oh wow yeah. so we got that a lot and even to this day playing instrumental music you still get people say oh you know that was pretty good for instrumental <laughs> so it, yeah it, it, it can be it can be tough but it's also it makes you different speaking of being different I mean when you start an instrumental band, uh, are you then like um, hearing instant comparisons to other Canadian instrumental bands? Absolutely. Um, I feel sorry for the shadowy men. Um, we probably, I don't know what we did, but um, there was a lot of uh, references and comparisons. Um, and for years I said, we didn't sound anything like them, but a couple of years ago, Don, their drummer said, yeah, you guys kind of sound like us sometimes. <laughs> and I was a bit shocked. But those guys were so um, unintended instrumental in our, our well-being and our success. They really, not so much musically, but just seeing what they could do and who they were uh, really, really gave us uh, inspiration to keep, keep going and to do it. Our first Somewhere in our first year or so, we, we played with them a couple of times, and they were the nicest guys. And then when we started to travel, they were like our big brothers. Like we would sleep on Brian's floor. They would feed us. So many, uh, yeah, so much of our, the big brother role was filled by those guys. I was going to ask you this question. Like, how does one, you know, a lot of times the title of a song will come from somewhere involved with the lyric, <laughs> right? So right, uh, yeah. how does one title an instrumental song? Like, uh, like you know, Gump Worldsley's Lament, for example. I mean, how does one come to that uh, conclusion that that's what that song is 
Is that just wow. random word salad stuff, or is that like something really deep within that's a you know the average listener wouldn't pick up on? Um, not a lot of depth. Like Gump <laughs> Worsley's Lament. We were asked to supply a, a song to a, a Johnny Hanson Puck Rock presents hockey song compilation. Huh. So we came up with that, but so many songs, the title might have come first, mm. and we we just kept around it because we thought it was funny. <laughs> um, and yeah, sometimes it's just word association, or did you say word salad? Is that word salad, yeah, that was the term. I yeah. Um, I think we tried to have an Alberta title at least on every record. Mm. Whether it's like, you know, Crow Child Trail or Head Smashed in Buffalo Jump or... And for us, it was just as much fun to give it a name as it was to write it. Mm. And was that a collective uh, between the band members or did one guy take that on? In retrospect, we all contributed so much. I'd probably say that if one person had an idea, we would run with it. Um, and it could have been any of us. Mm. How does one know when to, I guess, uh, again, I apologize for my ignorance regarding instrumental music. Oh, but don't apologize. How does one know when to end a song? I mean, do you, do you write a song and structure it the same way as one would do if there was vocals, like bridges, choruses, intro, outro, things of that nature? I think so, yes. Um, and in the early days, I think, if I go back and listen to um, some of the first stuff, it seems that we had a formula that we milked for pretty much each song. Hmm. Um, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing, but some of that stuff still holds up. I, I can go back and listen to it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but it was a formula. And often when we were jamming, I don't think there was ever, until close to the end, like too many complete songs. We would have some ideas and we would just, you know, mess around in Richie's garage until we got bored and went and played Frisbee. And then we'd usually come up with a song or two. And, uh, the name Huevos Rancheros. I kind of skipped over that part of the uh, the band story, but how did that come to be exactly? Same way the uh, titles of the songs did, just kind of made you laugh. Or? Pretty much. Well, we used to say, you know, dumb name, dumb band. <laughs> um, and I think naming a band is so hard hmm. in some respects. On the other hand, like band names are the absolute representation of infinity because you can never ever run out of it. Hmm. And it makes sense. Like, there's always going to be band names. Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be dumb band names, too. <laughs> but again, you know, when we started, the goal was just get a case of beer and, and play for whoever would watch us. So the name wasn't super important. But in retrospect, I can't come up with a better name. <laughs> and we often fa found that people thought we were. were from somewhere else like people in texas thought we were from seattle and people in seattle thought we were from texas <laughs> um, but it was fine it was a good name it actually i can remember being in humpty's egg palace and someone saying whoa you guys are on the menu <laughs> <laughs> thinking that we were actually famous so. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> did you roll with it or did you uh uh, you know, I can't remember. Probably, <laughs> but then we were we were kind of naive and and kind of bashful sometimes. We oh no no. But yeah, that would happen quite a bit. That's amazing. Was, was there any other names in contention before you guys picked Wavos? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I, I I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure that it was just like, you know, we will be an instrumental band. We will be called Wavos Rancheros. We will <laughs> have our 
Yeah, and in those early days when Graham had a van, we didn't even dismantle the drum set. We just threw everything complete <laughs> into the back of the van. That's amazing. And I remember loading into the western through the back door, just you know, the bass drum pedal still attached to the bass <laughs> drum, and it just seemed that was our aesthetic back then. Um, you mentioned Seattle there just a, a little while ago. Um, how does uh, a Calgary instrumental band end up on a Seattle label for their first kind of full-length release? There's a pretty good garage rock scene on the West Coast. And uh, Estrus Records out of Bellingham was putting in lots of great 45s. And uh, we made a connection with Dave Kreider. And we got a couple of spots on a couple of compilation records. And then uh, we did our Rocket to Nowhere 7-inch EP with him. Hmm. And uh, that enables to play in, in Seattle and Bellingham and sort of get down there. And that record actually probably went all over the world. Wow. And then we met uh, Daniel House, who was an early sub-pop guy. Hmm. And he started his own record label. And we met him and he said, oh, yeah, I'll put your record out. And it was that easy. Okay, you can put a record out, which I think probably burned a bridge with Kreider and and Estrus, but we may have been drifting away from their aesthetic as well. They continued to, to put out great records, but we did the uh, the uh, Seattle one with with C C Z C slash Z. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and then uh, and then after that, like the next record was a co-release between Mint and a fella in in England who had a label called One Louder. And I'm not sure how we hooked up with him. I think he may have had a couple of our records, and he had put out a man or Astroman 45. Now, if we can dial back just a bit, I mean, did you record that record in Seattle as well, or did that one just... Um... No, we recorded... We always recorded here. Hmm. We did um, a cassette and all our demos in Richie's Garage. Hmm. And then... Um, but he had a studio basement, and for Ensville, we used a real studio, and I think our budget was twelve hundred bucks. Oh wow! And and we came we came in under. Hmm. Oh wow! It was a good experience. It was actually kind of kind of tough because we uh, we would occasionally have trouble getting along under pressure, but mm. but we made it, and it's still a pretty good record. Yeah, no, I love the album. I mean, like uh, you mentioned, Crow, Tri Crow Child Trail, which is great. Yeah, and also yeah. a track called Wild and Wendy. Which uh, Wild and Wendy, yeah. Do you remember uh, writing either of those songs and uh, how those two songs came to be? Any kind of background you can give me on them? Well, Wild and Wendy is, yeah, you know, Wild and Wendy is vaguely surfy, mm -hmm. and there is a surf song, and it's called Windy and Wild. I think we sort of word saladed the wild, windy and wild, and Crowchild Trail. Um, I can remember our early jams on it. Huh. Um, and it's basically a flipped around Link Ray riff hmm. um, mixed up with our patented uh, minor chord in the middle formula that we were using.
and the artwork for the records. You guys uh, always had great art on your albums. Ansville, for example, uh, the artwork for that record. What's the background on that exactly? And the, and the, the following albums. Yeah, well, that's Tom Bagley. Hmm. Tom pretty much did all of our art. And he's a genius. He's a Calgary guy. Hmm. Um, his band is Forbidden Dimension. Hmm. Yeah, he's he's a genius. And also one of the nicest guys on the planet. So it's pretty easy not to like him. But he... Uh, Oh, you know, I'm kidding. Everybody loves Tom. He, uh, <laughs> he's, he's just a great illustrator. And we had known Tom forever. He's the same age as, as I am. And uh, we had always seen his art and we'd always um, cross paths. So we said, Tom, can you do this? And so he did pretty much every, uh, every release we had. Now, was that something where you're giving him concepts based on the final recorded material or he's just presenting you ideas out of kind of left field. I think he worked on his own. Hmm. Yeah, even the very first cassette, the Huevasaurus cassette, he drew the, the Huevasaurus. Oh, wow. I'll have to try and send you some of the stuff. Yeah, please. Find yeah, it. I'd like to, yeah. to share that on the Instagrams and whatnot. Yeah. So once you have a full length out with uh, like a Seattle label, which which is around 93, I think. I mean, yeah, Seattle 93. is worldwide, you know, Everybody knows Seattle now because of the grunge movement and whatnot, as you were. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you have extra cachet being on a, on a Seattle label? I mean, does that mean more to people trying to, you know, trying to book you? Or uh, is your music now getting into films of, you know, of, of skate films or surf films or things of that nature because of that connection? From Ensville, uh, we actually, the first thing we got was a car commercial. Oh, wow. Right, Pontiac Sunfire. No way. And that was how we learned and also how Daniel House of CZ learned just how like musical placement works and how people get paid. And we thought, well, that was pretty cool. And another song from that, um, like Moth Dance, was in an independent movie called Love in a 45. Oh, wow. But uh, I don't know if that was Seattle or just happenstance hmm. where people heard it. Because there, this was two years before the sort of post uh, pulp fiction instrumental boom right right which was kind of a pain in the ass because uh, like the first time we toured when the record was coming out we went to south by southwest hmm. in uh that was 93 and we played with a few other instrumental bands the insect surfers from los angeles and uh we might have played with leica and the cosmonauts who were russians a proper surf band hmm. and a guy named tysco del rey um, but we quickly sort of noticed that we were like the loudest and brashest and most kind of punk of all these bands. But uh, when we returned to Canada, we made all our all our tour stops everywhere we played. Someone in the audience, someone in the other band would say, oh, yeah, you know, um, my friends have a surf band. My other band's a surf band. And we could see it coming. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, literally once Pulp Fiction came out and the opening of that movie is so powerful. It was Dick Dale that I guess that just, that was the catalyst for anyone who was picking up a guitar and wanted to have a band. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I, but it was also kind of a pain in the ass, like I said, because then the number of quote, quote, surf bands, we never thought we were a surf band, but instrumental bands quadrupled and a lot of them were terrible. <laughs> what exactly constitutes a surf band? Well, I mean, how would you differentiate that from, say, another instrumental rock band? 
Well, I'm not a real musician, so it might be hard to put <laughs> proper mu- musical terms. But um, I'm not a real podcaster, so I mean, just go with it. Well, there are there's certain um, guitar sounds and certain there's a certain formula to surf music, hmm. and I think the problem with any genre is um, it's hard to explain. Within a genre, if you can work within the genre, but you can um, either perfectly match the best stuff of that genre or surpass it um, by bringing in some of your, I don't know, some of your own flavors, it's, it's good. But so many of these bands are, to me, like surf by numbers um, mm. and generally kind of toothless. I think there's probably a lot of people who won't agree with me, but I always find that the best quote, quote, surf bands are not simply trying to replicate Asked, mm-hmm. and they're actually writing really good songs. You mentioned the the, the past um, just a second ago. I'm curious when you started uh, to get your interest in instrumental music. Did you look at what Canada had done previously? I mean, did you search out previous Canadian instrumental bands to kind of see what uh, this country was doing? You know, in the '60s or '70s or '80s. Or... You know, we we didn't. Uh, we were aware of the Shouting Men because they had started um, in the mid '80s. Uh, and in fact, the Ted Clark Five had played with played with them once at the National Hotel. But uh, our biggest inspiration was Big Guitars from Texas, which mm. was a record um, that had my guy Evan Johns and Don Leedy and all these Texas guitar players who were doing instrumental music. And a lot of it wasn't surf. A lot of it was kind of Link Ray inspired or Spaghetti Western inspired or just that weird blend of sex, mex, polka, rock and roll that happens down there. I'm just looking at the uh, the mid-bio here uh, for reference again in a second. And uh, 1995, um, your first North American tour. I'm, I'm curious, how far and how long was it? I mean, did you go all the way around the U.S. and coast to coast in Canada? or And who did you go with? I mean, what kind of bands... Do uh, yeah. do Wavos quote with? That might be wrong. I think like when the when the record the first record came out, Ensville in '93, um, we went drove across Canada, and we hooked up with a band called Love Battery. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, which a Seattle band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we played a few shows with them, and they were the nicest guys. And the best thing about them was their uh, their drummer. Uh, was it Jason Finn, who was a nice guy? This is now I'm going off track here, but that's fine. Yeah, met Jason, and uh, you know, we were in Seattle playing a show several months later, and he was tending bar huh. at the place we went, went for a drink. And he said, Hey, man, uh, how you doing? Like I said, great guy, very friendly. Um, man, me and my friends, we got a, a fuck band together, we're called the President of the United States of America, <laughs> and he was laughing, and then. Look what happened to them. No way. Boom, yeah. So that was a, that's the Jason Finn story. But on that, uh, we played a few shows Love Batter. We also played at Fufun Electric with um, I Mother Earth, huh. which was a weird combination. And I remember we were super grumpy because we had about literally three feet on the end of the stage for our gear because they wouldn't move anything. Oh, wow. And I think I think we played, and I can't remember the reaction. I think there's probably a good crowd there. 
Um, and we did our best at the buoy left right away. Huh. And then we went down, um, went down as far as, uh, uh, like Virginia beach down, down the coast that the East, the East coast. And we played, uh, they, we didn't really go all through the States ever. It, that, that was quite an adventure. We, we did a lot of nutty things. We, uh, Played in a restaurant in New York with comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, what? How does that gig happen? <laughs> he hosted a TV show called uh, Up All Night, and that was on the USA Network. And um, he would show a bad movie and make jokes, and there was always a band on. Huh. So we played, and uh, he was quite nice. And we were, because we were playing in a restaurant, we were very quiet, but I remember he had to make sure he had earplugs. And the poor people who, who owned the restaurant were the nicest folks ever, and they thought we were famous. <laughs> so they're taking, they're taking their pictures with us, and we had food. And we were just these three, or actually we had, there were four of us, our buddy Andrew, and we were four terrified Canadian guys who'd never really been to Manhattan before, and it was bonkers. <laughs> and uh, a woman uh, who worked for the production took pity on us and wanted to stay in her house, huh. which was nice. I remember uh, someone when she said, well, you can stay at my place. Someone says, you've never met these guys. And then she goes, well, look at them. <laughs> so, and we were, we, we were quite polite. And that gig actually, because probably even more than instrumental music, we all love the Ramones. Hmm. And Joey Ramones' apartment was kitty corner from the restaurant. Oh, no way. And someone on, on set, might be the one who says, oh, I know Joey. I'll <laughs> give him a call, see if he'll come over. And we were just like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> But she phoned him, and uh, he had an appointment with his foot doctor, oh. and didn't didn't want to walk across the street. <laughs> yeah, so I think from that day on, we often would put him on the guest list, no matter where we were playing. <laughs> That's so. awesome. <laughs> but but back to the uh, mint bio. After that adventure, we learned it was a lot easier just to go up and down the West Coast. Hmm. We would often drive from Vancouver to San Diego and back, because we could have Mexican food every day. Um, people were nice and the shows were often pretty good. Now, was that CZ putting those kind of tours together or is that, um, you guys doing that from Calgary? I should mention that we had a fifth Beatle uh, named <laughs> John Hewer, and he was a, a friend of mine from Calgary. And when he moved to Vancouver, he was the only guy I knew who had a fax machine. <laughs> and he also worked for some, uh, big companies and was good at, at doing cold calls. So we said, John, you are our manager. He said, uh, okay. <laughs> and with John's help, he got us at like our first out of town show. Um, we played in Vancouver and Victoria very early on. And it was John's contact with Dave Kreider that got us that. And so John and maybe Daniel as well was able to find us people to help us cobble our first couple of tours together. And, uh, so it was a combination of John in Vancouver and hmm. him being able to find some folks in the States. You mentioned that trip to New York and the, uh, yeah. the mint bio also mentions a gig opening up for Henry Rollins to CBGB's. I don't know how it happened. Like, uh, it was just on our itinerary. Oh yeah. CBGB's. And we played huh. Henry Rollins headlining and there was another band called Greta. It was kind of a goofy night. The guys in the band were, very friendly the, the road manager was very friendly henry we didn't even see <laughs> um greta was terrible and we broke a rule we loaded our equipment out of cbg's before the end of the night 
because we had to be in Cleveland the next afternoon. So yeah, we got dirty looks. We collect our hundred or hundred hundred bucks from. Uh, I'm guessing it might have been Hilly Crystal, and then we had a sort of treacherous overnight drive. It was cool. It, it was neat to do, and maybe a year later, we played with uh, Wesley Willis. Oh no way! In Oregon, and some of the guys in the band remembered us. Huh? And Wesley Willis was busy giving head butts and. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And being the very famous Wesley Willis that uh, some people might remember. Now, how does uh, Mint Records get involved with you guys? Is that uh, the connections you've made out in Vancouver, or is that uh, another roundabout way? Um, it's another roundabout way. We mm. ended up doing some shows with Cub, mm. and um, their driver and helper router guy was Bill Baker. Right. Who mm-hmm. was one half of Mint Records. And we got along fabulously with Bill. And he said, Hey, if you ever want to do a record, we'll put it out. So we naturally called Bill when we started to do some more recording and said, Hey, do you want to put this out? And that ended up being um, Dig In, which was released in North America by Mint and in uh, the UK and Europe by One Louder. Now, um, was there a market difference in CZ versus Mint? I mean, both small kind of indie labels? Uh, well, we were not any good at business. Um, <laughs> and it kind of, one, actually, one of our sort of business philosophies was if we're friends with the people or the people are, are nice, let's do it. But that, was, that was how it worked with, mm. with Crider and, and with Dave House and with Bill and Randy. They were nice people. They had some nice records coming out. And it just kind of made sense maybe because they were Canadian. It seemed a little easier. Hmm. Now, once um, you mentioned like a, like a co-release between like a UK and Europe, European labels there. Yeah. Um, once the record is out there, is then that's a goal to get over there and play the record to support it? What was really cool was One Louder put out um, Rockin' in the Hen House 45. Hmm. And uh, famed British DJ John Peel became a fan of that record and oh, wow. he would play it on, on his BBC show huh. and that netted us a, a John Peel session. Wow. So, which was a huge privilege. You know, in retrospect, I know there's been a gazillion bands of John Peel sessions, but for us, a completely independent little Canadian band to do John Peel session was really cool. And that was our first quote, quote gig when we went to, went to Europe the first time. And it was quite the experience. It was, it was good. The tour was, was brutal because I think we did 40 shows in 42 days. Wow. You know, and after a week or so, we hated each other. <laughs> we, 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 just, we just couldn't escape. Um, we were four guys in a minivan, a Toyota minivan, <laughs> with all of our gear and um, all of our merchandise and our poor driver, Steve. We drove him nuts. And we drove each other nuts. We, it, it was hard. It was a real slog. But when we came back, we had great stories, and we played a lot of cool places. Um, and I think the record did okay. Did you uh, go over there with any other Canadian bands, or did you go over there and then meet bands from the, the areas that you would travel to to uh, play with? Well, that trip, uh, there were just local bands that would open for us. The second time we did that, Duotang came with us. Oh, no way. And because um, they had a new Mint record, and we had a, a new Mint record that was also released in... Uh, 
Europe by a label called Concurrent. And I think they had done some No Means No stuff and were happy to put out another Canadian band. And that was, uh, that was another difficult tour. <laughs> you know, the Duotang guys are pretty hilarious, but they're pretty particular in their ways. And <laughs> so were we. And it's not that we didn't get along with anybody. It's just there was a lot of friction that would happen. When you're cooped up in a van and you're tired and you're bored, it's pretty easy to get um, on someone's nerves. You mentioned you came back with a lot of stories. Uh, yeah. What's one that you still tell to this day? I mean, is there one that sticks oh. out? You get, you get some drinks going if you do that or what have you with your buddies. And Oh, yeah, man. I got a few. Yeah. I'd love to hear um, one or two, yeah. One of my favorite stories is on that Duotank tour. We were in Spain, and we played uh, Valencia. Hmm. And um, I think we were all, of course, we were all grumpy with each other. But uh, <laughs> some fans brought us a jar of homemade absinthe and said, this will last you for the rest of the tour. (laughs) And our bass player, Tom managed to consume most or all of that jar between the venue and our hotel. (laughs) And, um, he was, I think he was mad at us and we were mad at him. And I don't know if there was a yelling match or something, but it was raining and we're of course on the Mediterranean and, um, I go down the marble boardwalk and I find a phone and I call home and I'm saying, oh man, I'm so unhappy. This is the worst tour I've been ever been on. I want to come home. <laughs> and then Tom, in all of his clothing, walks past me and just walks right into the ocean. <laughs> and I remember at that time thinking, oh, Tom, you know, if you never come back, it's too soon. <laughs> but he had come back. He came back and um, I remember him waking me up and he's dripping wet and his pockets were full of sand and he was yelling at me for something. <laughs> and, and the next day, I'm sure he wasn't feeling well. We, uh, we just put poor Tom in the back of the van with all of the gear and we nicknamed him the creature of Calais. Cause that was our next stop. <laughs> and we, you know, stuffed a sandwich and water bottle through the crack of the door and, and it took off. Yeah. And in retrospect, like we, we all survived. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The poor Duotang guys. And they were, uh, they were quite a cute couple. They were kind of like a married couple. And um, <laughs> One of the things we've, we found quite entertaining about those guys is they were incredibly bathroom shy. <laughs> we called them Rod and Todd. <laughs> but I can't remember if it was Rod or Sean that um, probably hadn't had a movement in like a week. <laughs> and it, it must have been a pain. And we stopped at the Swiss border, and there were these beautiful, you know, small, compact, private, clean bathrooms. And the look on those guys' faces when they came out was uh, worth a thousand words for sure.
Now, Du Tang had a connection with Mint as well. And I'm curious, now once you're on Mint, even when you get back to Canada or North America, are you going on tour with only Mint bands then? Like Our tours were usually pretty goofy. Like we, um, we were not the hardest touring band in the world. Again, we discovered it was way easier to fly to Toronto and rent a van and rent equipment from Long McQuaid and play half a dozen shows out there and fly home. Hmm. Like that was just way better than driving. Yeah, and having so as a as a result, I think we only played Regina maybe once in our whole career. Oh wow! Because we just started skipping it, and you know we would skip Winnipeg and Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay. But tour wise, we did um, when Mal was first a band. We played with them, and that was sort of a, a nice way to uh, develop a friendship with uh, uh, Nico and Toby and, and CC. And of course we. Played with Pluto here and there. We played uh, with the Smugglers every once in a while, but we weren't. I don't think there was ever any sort of Mint Records package tours. Hmm. Let's talk about music videos here, because with Dig, um, I mean, Gut Worley's Lament got a lot of play previously. And w- yeah. uh, one question with that video, though, um, was there ever a uh, idea to p- put any hockey theme in it because of the, the title of the of the, of the song? <laughs> well, I think. In Gump Warsley's Lament, the uh, the grumpy chef has a hockey stick. Uh, that that might be the only nod to hockey in the whole thing. We had a, a lot of our videos were made by a guy named Robert Cuffley, who's an Alberta filmmaker. Mm. And sort of like everything we did, it was all shoestring. Um, Robert was great at rounding up volunteers and people who would work for nothing or next to nothing. And... Uh, we had a bunch of videos with Robert. Now, are those concepts that you're presenting to Robert, saying, me and the guys thought of this, or is that stuff that he's just saying, hey, I was thinking of this weird film idea, and we'll just put a song to it? It was it was Rob, yeah. I think, um, like, our very first video, Cindy with an S, hmm. um, that was done by a guy named Nick Copas from uh, Vancouver. I think he's a filmmaker. I haven't seen or heard from him in 30 years, but... Uh, <laughs> He was a friend of a friend and said, oh, I'll make a video. And I think we spent 900 bucks on that one. And, wow. and much music at the time. Because they were, they were, in the 90s, they were actually all about music. And <laughs> yeah, they were indeed, really yeah. good to us. Like Cindy with an S, which is a super goofy video. Um, but might have a little bit of cute and charm. They played it a ton. And I think it was because there were very few, if any, bands from or independent bands from Western Canada making videos. Hmm. Yeah, so that was followed, I think might have been followed by Gump, um, which was followed by, oh, uh, Rockin' in the Hen House might have come before Gump even. Hmm. Uh, Hen House, Gump, Dodge, those are all cuffly ones. And um, Shout of the Apache is a cuffly one. But videos were great. Much Music was super kind to us. They really helped us out a lot. Was there a specific person at the, at Much Music that was a really champion for you guys, or just? It might even have been Denise Donlan. Oh wow! But whenever we were there, there were you know, Suki and Lee, or um, they, they, anyway, they were all just super nice to us. And we got the opportunity to play. Uh, we played in their loading dock. We played in the studio a few times. Oh, no way! They they always seemed to, to make space for us when we were around. Oh wow! Yeah, super lucky. With much music, though, um, also came um, play on some MTV as well. We were we were really very fortunate to um, I don't know it was timing or 
or what. But anytime there was an opportunity, we would take it. Mm. And we also worked hard in spite of the fact that, you know, our original goal was 50 bucks in a case of beer. We worked really hard at, at getting stuff done and, and, and going and doing stuff. Now with uh, Dig In though, did uh, more music, pl- like movie and TV placements come as well? Yes. And uh, were you now wiser because of the experience of uh, Ensville? Well, yeah. Um, with Ensville, the recordings were paid for and I guess owned by the record label. Mm. And that cuts into your profits. So with uh, our licensing deal with Mint, we own the recordings mm. and we license them to Mint. So that enabled us to get a little bit more money. Now, unfortunately, though, the can, the multitude of of you know movie of the week or whatever we had tons of songs and tons of shows financially it wasn't super huge it was maybe only a couple hundred bucks here 500 bucks there we didn't sort of see better licensing money until we had a song in sopranos oh wow and uh and that was good but over time you know the 14 cents from this and the eight cents from that, it adds up, and we would get small SoCan checks. It was, it was so nice to get that. It's like found money, indeed. Yeah, for us. I mean, people who are real songwriters and <laughs> and that's their living. I'm sure they get some some really lovely uh, checks now and again. Now, who is that? You said you had just nominated a guy to kind of be your manager earlier. I mean, who's kind of negotiating <laughs> yeah. those kinds of deals with like synchronization and things of that nature? I mean, who would they come to? They would go to Mint and then Mint would do that on your behalf? Or how does that work exactly? Yeah, they would either go through Mint because Bill um, did a lot of the, the licensing for that. Um, some people would come directly to us or John, John Dewar. John actually wangled us a beer commercial once. Huh. And, um, and that was great. We were treated very well. We got to hang out with Don Ho. Oh, no way. But the rumor is, and I need to speak with Craig Northy about this, I think the only reason we were offered, and again, it's, it's, it's remarkable that a band like us was offered a beer commercial, um, but I think the odds in 5440 turned it down. Huh. And why they came to us, I'm not sure, but I'm so grateful. And that you know, put our visibility up a notch. And because we're, you're avid beer drinkers, it didn't feel like selling out. And when <laughs> we got paid as much as we did, you know, we're not Neil Young. We're not selling millions of records. <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't think twice about saying yes to that. And it was fun. And he actually got to be in the video, like with Don Ho? Yeah. Huevos Rancheros and Don Ho were providing entertainment at some guy's ultimate rooftop party. That's amazing. And so Don Ho was jamming with us huh. on the rooftop. Yeah, it, it was really cool. And again, you know, what a what a great opportunity for us. Now, uh, you might be the only person that I ever have on the podcast who hung with Don Ho, so any Don Ho stories <laughs> that uh, you can share, uh, any moments that re- you can I recall. Don't, I don't know how old he was, but he seemed remarkably well-preserved at that time. <laughs> Um, he was, he was friendly. His handler was, um, a very striking, much younger than him, Hawaiian woman. Uh, <laughs> he, he was nice. He let me hold his ukulele. Oh, nice. And that I think was, I think it might've been the first time I realized that a ukulele can be a real instrument. <laughs> um, cause just, 
don't know if you're a guitar player or what, but you know, sometimes when you hold an instrument, you don't even have to to strum it. You can just tell. Um, I don't know what it is. Interesting. Like, wow, this is the real thing. And he said that his daughter would like us because she likes alternative music. And that when we, if we ever made it to Hawaii, drinks were on him. Oh, nice. Yeah, he, he, was, he was nice. And I think I stepped on his toes about 50 times. <laughs> the poor guy. Now, uh, going into uh, Ghetto to Dodge, though, I mean, with uh, the follow-up to Dig In, are you now feeling any kind of pressure at all, knowing that uh, Dig In had, you know, you, you, you took that record took you to Europe, you know, massive airplay, I mean, on video play on much music and commercials. And is there any ever kind of expectations felt now upon you for the first time, or was it just kind of going with the flow? I think, I think we were in a hurry to get it done. How come was that was uh, the rush? Well, I think we just felt it was time. And mm-hmm. um, Graham had left the band and Tom had joined. And uh, we had we had a few songs kicking around. And I remember, I can't remember who it was. Um, I just read somewhere, oh, yeah, you know, when I was making someone with a hit record, like maybe it was Matthew Sweet or I don't know, said, yeah, you know, we... We had no record company backing, so I just put it all on my credit card. <laughs> and I and I said to guys, hey, let's go make a recording. I'll put it on my credit card. <laughs> and um, we went into a, a studio with our friend Dave Alcock, who uh, ended up being in Chicks Dig It for a while. Huh. And uh, Dave, Dave and I actually worked on the first Chicks Dig It album for Sub Pop, where I, I was given the glorious title of producer. <laughs> And actually, for me, that was great because I I got a paycheck from Sub Pop. Huh. Yeah, and um, there was a lot of babysitting involved in making that record. How so? Well, Chicks Dig It uh, were... They had a lot of late nights. <laughs> you know? And I think I felt, oh, I'm the producer, I have to make sure everything goes smoothly, and mm-hmm. I... And, you know, people would be mad if it goes over budget and this and that. Uh, and um, and it, it turned out fine. And it's a great record. Mm-hmm. And their manager after told me, he said, well, you know, we didn't tell you this, but we figured if the record sucked, there's enough money left over, we could do it again. <laughs> Which I didn't know whether to be uh, flattered that they, you know, kept everything that we did or <laughs> or insulted that they didn't, they didn't trust me. Is there a track on that album that uh, you're really proud of? I just love that record. We championed those guys. And another funny chicks dig it. Sorry. Like their first out of town show was in Seattle opening up for us. Oh, no way. And, uh, we made the joke. Oh yeah. Ho, ho, they'll get signed to sub pop. Well, and then what happened? <laughs>
But um, back to Dodge, we recorded some songs. We went down the West Coast and got back, so we were quite well rehearsed. And then we knocked out the rest of the record and uh, put it out fairly quickly. We did the video, Get Out of Dodge, which got tons of play. And we milked that record for a couple of years, like it well past its, its expiry date. Um, but it got us the Juno nomination, um, got us back to Europe, concurrent in the uh, hall and put it out. So that was kind of our most successful record, I think. It probably sold the most and got us the most attention. And, and why do you think that was? The, you think it's the songs? Was it the timing of the album? Well, I think it was all of that. One nice thing for me... Um, it was short, yeah, five or six songs, and some of those instrument, instrumental records can bore the pants off you. Like, mm. um, not always, but it's funny. You you might think that uh, that me or the rest of the guys in the band, that all we do is listen to surf music. <laughs> it's not, but it's not true. You know, we always preferred the Ramones and the replacements to uh, to going through the Safari's greatest hits. <laughs> Which is maybe another reason why some of those, uh, the retro communities didn't really um, adopt it as much as we might have liked. Mm. With the Get Out of Dodge, we kind of brushed on it, but you also got that Juno nomination. Uh, yep. Did that surprise you guys? Was that something that you uh, expected or hoped for? Or Well, we were, we were super pleased. Um, we did learn, though, that anybody can get nominated for Juno if you get enough sort of uh, steam behind it. So Mint put in the nomination for the nomination, I think. Uh, and then there, it goes through a, a voting process. And, and we were okayed. And, I mean, that was pretty great. We knew right off the top that we wouldn't win. Treble Charger, no, Treble Charger didn't win. It was uh, Brand Van 3000. Was it? It was. For their, their Drinking in L.A. album. Huh. Um, uh, yeah, it was us and Treble Charger. And copyright, which was the guys from Slow, right? Transfiguration and and Brand Van, and uh, we were the only band with no sort of big label representation. Just had Mints, so it was kind of neat. But it was flattering, and the fact that I guess our records could hold their own against those types, and it was a great party. It was in Vancouver for the first time. That was the first time the Junos were hosted outside it? Toronto. And, um, and, and the best alternative album might have been a pretty new category as well. So when Shania Twain was the host, I, was she, I think she was the host. Um, when it was time to announce the winner of our category, even though I knew I wouldn't win, I was terrified that we would win. <laughs> and I wouldn't, be able to, I wouldn't be able to walk anywhere or say anything. So <laughs> We didn't win. And it was a great party. And, and again, grateful to have to have lost the Juno and Van 3000. <laughs> you know, the 90s in Canada, I mean, alternative music, as we just kind of mentioned, is a new category. I mean, the Juno is fairly new. Um, it was really taking a hold with things like Much Music and, you know, the Edge Fest and Chart Magazine. And yeah. Did you yeah. guys feel that as well, getting that, um, just the craziness that was happening in this country with um, alternative music? Yeah, it was easier to get shows. Uh, we played Edge Fest in Toronto once, and we played mm. one in Vancouver, uh, and we somehow found ourselves on those big uh, last day of the year university parties. We played in mm. Thunderbird Stadium with, uh, oh, wow. oh man, my, my brain is such, Matthew Good, uh, Holly McNarlin, 
Hmm. Um, it was a Canadian hip hop group. Why well, can't I remember their name? Um, Rascals. Yes, I think it was the Rascals. And the best thing about them, I mean, not <laughs> they were great. But in the middle of a song, one of their dancers got a phone call no and way. went off stage to <laughs> answer, and they came back. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But for us, you know, I think it was like eight thousand people, and um, we didn't have a play in front of that many. It was kind of terrifying, but it was also very exhilarating as well. Now, with that being your biggest show to that point, I mean, was that? Um, do you take an extra look at the set list, saying what can we do to translate <laughs> to that many people? Well. Yeah, but we also sort of knew that nobody's going to know who we are. So it's probably <laughs> best if if we uh, run around and jump around and, and, and have as much fun as possible to take advantage of. Mm. Yeah, we did that in Edgefest and uh, UVic. Um, it was pretty cool. Another, I'd like to say, a great opportunity. We often found ourselves playing the Spirit of the West. Oh, yeah. Which was kind of nice. Yeah. You know, was there Canadian bands that you... Um really loved from that decade that you really uh, were introduced to through, through things like those gigs you were just talking about or wow. from watching much music or reading chart magazine or listening on the radio. Was there any kind of Canadian band that um, you became a fan of? Well, we met and played with the odds pretty early on hmm. um, and talked about nice guys. That was pretty great. Uh, and then again, locally chicks dig it and forbidden dimension. Um, we really championed our hometown scene, Von Zippers, the Mance, uh, and then Vancouver. There's just there's so many great bands in Canada at the time. Many that we didn't actually get to meet or play with Sloan. Like those guys should probably be canonized. <laughs> um, those, those are my memory banks. Now, towards the end of the decade, uh, you know, alternative music as a whole worldwide was. Um, you know, a new music, the pop music and dance music and electronica was starting to come to the popular culture and kind of replace alternative music in a way. Um, you know, and then things like the internet really picked up and streaming and record labels combined and all these kinds of things happened, uh, which yeah. kind of brought a lot, brought the end to a lot of bands. Um, did you guys feel that as well, even being on Mint, a smaller label? Did you feel well, the landscape changing? Oh, yeah. And sometimes we would have... Um like label envy hmm. and not we were not unhappy with mint it was like how come those guys are on sony <laughs> or you know yeah, um again uh, for every really great band there's a ton of mediocre ones um yeah was, sometimes we're surprised hmm. why is that band why do they have a nicer van than we do <laughs> um we often had van envy but uh but in retrospect really we were quite successful Mm -hmm. um, for being, for being who and and what we were, indeed. Yeah. Now, two thousand brought the last record for Huevos, yep. and you guys never officially broke up. But I'm curious, uh, why no more no more material after the two thousand release? I think we're on one hand we we're all really tired of each other, mm. and uh, which made it kind of hard for us to want to do gigs. We were also at a point where. I think because of family obligations of buying houses and stuff, it was harder for us to get out of town. Mm. And playing in town, it sounds kind of goofy, but we could no longer do, you know, we couldn't just play at the night gallery for a hundred bucks in a case of beer because the precedent had been set that, you know, in order, I guess, to make it worthwhile, we had to have X amount of dollars and X amount of stuff. Which sounds super snobbish and shitty, um, 
So I wonder how I could make it make more sense. That's, that is actually why I formed the Rambling Ambassadors, mm. was to just sort of come back to um, let's get on stage and, and open up for whoever and, and make it easy. We'll get into Ramblin' Ambassadors in just a minute, but um, before we do that, uh, any kind of final words or any kind of final stories on your time in the 90s? Uh, maybe next time we talk, I'll have some more stories. But really, the, the 90s was a great time to make music. Mm. Um, I don't know if the internet kind of destroyed that, but in Canada, much music was about music. People's tastes weren't quite so um, politicized or fragmented. You know, a lot of the the uh, big bills we played there. It was a really cool land of bands and people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So grateful that we were able to do as much as we did in that time. That sounds pretty lame. <laughs> it's, it sounds perfect. It sounds nice. You mentioned the Ramblin' Ambassadors though, which is uh, your latest project. Um, yeah. How does that differ from Wavell's Rancheros? And uh, can we tell the folks about it and what kind of song you think it's really reflective well, of what you do with them? To me, I mean, it's instrumental, but it sounds and feels quite different than Huevos. Mm. Uh, Huevos was a lot raunchier and um, grungier in a lot of ways. Mm. The Ambassadors, uh, it was just sort of based on me rounding up friends to play music with. You have three albums on Mint. Is there a track that I could... Uh... I could play in the podcast. It uh, is representative of uh, the ambassadors. Oh, there's so many. Um, Right now, I would like to hear Dead Man's Flats.
Final question. Now, I have a playlist on Spotify and Apple of all 90s, quote-unquote, can rock. I'm asking all uh-huh. the guests to uh, contribute three songs to the playlist, so two singles and one deep cut of uh, the 90s material. So how would you like uh, Huevos Rancheros to be represented on the playlist? Okay, let's go um, Let's go, Cindy with an S. Hmm. That was our, I mean, that was, that was actually kind of a grunge song, really. Um, and Get Out of Dodge. Hmm. And for the deep cut, man, let's see. Let's take something off. Oh, you're going to want to be able to find it, so it can't be from Muerte del Toro. Right. It should be. How about um, American Sunset? Mm. Uh, that's a Link Ray cover, but Tom Bagley plays the organ on it. And I thought that was one of our our nicest recordings in a way. It just it's, it's a really cool song, and we managed to... Uh, capture the kind of vibe we were going for. Perfect. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me about uh, Huevos and your experience in the 90s, man. It's been fantastic. Glad to talk. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven's Rule. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, Get advanced notes of the guests and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.